listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. And I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. In season one of Superpower Curiosity, we're focusing on how to overcome divisiveness and why we feel better and more effective when we do. To read all about this, check out Richard's book, It's a Freaking Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. This is a special episode of Superpower Curiosity, featuring a discussion between Richard and a very special guest. Here's Richard. Thank you, Molly. It's my pleasure to introduce Mark Gerzon, United Nations Advisor on Leadership Development, author of multiple books on leadership, and facilitator extraordinaire on healing political divides and building peace. In the late 1990s, Mark was invited by Congress to help design and to facilitate the US bipartisan congressional retreats. In these retreats, Mark helped Republicans and Democrats listen to each other with respect. This remarkable achievement led on to cross-partisan work in many organizations, including the Council for Excellence in Government. Mark was then assigned by the United Nations Development Program to work with countries encountering election violence and partisan stalemates. And Mark's understanding of diverse cultures was aided by the fact that he had lived in seven different countries and also by his work as a journalist on the global newspaper, World Paper, which Mark co-founded and which reached a circulation of one and a half million people. This was a newspaper uh, that was global and very well respected. Mark's books include Leading Through Conflict and his most recent book, The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide a very hopeful book. I can say that because I've read it. One of the things I admire about Mark is his extensive breadth of experience and his profound belief in a deep principle of humanity, which underlies all differences, the heart of each person that recognizes the same heart in all people, which is the basis of compassion and the root to respect and cooperation. So now, please pour yourself a cup of kindness and take a seat with me and Mark in the Curiosity Room. Mark, welcome to the Curiosity Room. It's good to be with you, Richard. It's good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. Well, Mark, since we're in the digital curiosity room, do you have any general thoughts on the the need for curiosity? I do, Richard. Um, My favorite quote from Albert Einstein, which I learned from my father, was, never lose a holy curiosity. Yes. Never lose your holy curiosity. 
And I love that because Einstein was actually saying that curiosity was holy. Yes. And um, I believe it's true. I believe it's true. And, and I think we've never needed curiosity as much as we need it today because without it, we won't be able to deal with climate change. We won't be able to deal with ethnic violence. We won't be able to deal with revising and remodeling and redesigning democracy. We won't be able to cope with the dangers and threats of social media. Uh, there's you know, countless issues that without curiosity, um, they, will, they will doom the human species. And um, with curiosity uh, comes hope and a lot of other beautiful values I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. Well, as you know, the, the title of this uh, podcast series is Superpower Curiosity. And uh, you, you had mentioned to me that, oh, there's a, there's a double meaning of that. You want to say, you want to tell the listeners what, what that was, is? Um, well, superpower, uh, you know, it's something that Superman has, but super, superpower is also how we referred at one point to the Soviet Union and how we refer now sometimes to the United States. Yes. And, and, and as the United States currently illustrates, when a superpower doesn't have curiosity, it's not a superpower for very long. Yes. Um, and the danger of power is that it makes the powerful less curious. Yes, yes. We substitute power for curiosity. The poor always have to be curious to survive. Yeah. Um, but the rich and powerful can, can, can try to, you know, to, can fail to cultivate it. And I think that's what, we're, what we see happening now is that we, we live in and we are both in, in at the moment a superpower that's, uh, that unless it shows some extraordinary curiosity, Yes. Um, will not be a superpower for long. I, you know, where, where that takes me is, is uh, this is a little historical, but it's the Vietnam War. Um, most people nowadays recognize that the Vietnam War uh, was a big mistake and it cost between two or three million lives and tremendous amount of suffering, I, I don't need to tell you. Um, and with just a little bit of curiosity, that, that war could have been averted completely. And it's, it's tragic. Uh, it, it's, um, for example, um, with a little research, US leaders would have found out that Ho Chi Minh, the leader of North Vietnam, was, was actually a huge fan of the US and, and the American constitution. And he admired the way they got the British out and, uh, and found their political freedom. He was a great admirer. And, it's exactly what he wanted. He wanted freedom. He his motives were primarily nationalistic, and to re rid Vietnam of colonialism, colonialism, and to reunite his country. <laughs> and and as I, I know, I'm sure you know, the U.S. narrative was was that he was a prior, not primarily a nationalist. He was a part of the worldwide advance of communism, aided by Russia and China. And this leads me on to a question, actually, because. Um, Okay, was this was the U.S. narrative true? We now know that it wasn't true. Um, but what's interesting to me is the U.S. did do some research at that time, and they found out that Ho Chi Minh was not being supported by the Soviet Union or China, not even a tiny bit. But this only went to prove, the U.S. leaders said, that China and Russia trusted Vietnam so much with the cause of communism 
that they didn't need to interfere. So in other words, the US leaders were saying that the fact that China and Russia gave no aid to Ho Chi Minh proved that they were supporting Ho Chi Minh. So, <laughs> so this leads to a question about uh, partisan uh, curiosity, or maybe we could call it not real curiosity, but it's, you know, where, where the research is done and then um, we find the opposite of what we expect. And then we reinterpret the results to fit in with our, our old opinion. Thoughts on that? General thoughts on that? Because it happens yes, so much. I mean, in the 1960s, um, researchers developed the term confirmation bias. Yes. And you basically were just describing that phenomenon, which is, I would call it faux curiosity or fake curiosity. Yeah. You're looking, you're very curious, very, very curious to find out more information that supports your position. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's confirmation bias. So um, if you want to see Vietnam as communist, um, you can gather a lot of information to see that. Yeah. And, and, and um, I mean, we are having this conversation, you know, uh, during the week that the United States is frantically trying to get out of Afghanistan. Yes. And, and one can see some extraordinary parallels. There's been a lack of curiosity about Afghanistan. Yes, indeed. And my, my view is that, that uh, when we understand a country, um, like, well, let's say, I think to a certain degree, we understood Russia and Russian leaders. Kennedy was very good at the Bay of Pigs, um, dealing with, or not, not Bay of Pigs, but the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. Kennedy was very good at dealing with the Russians. Yes. Um, I think they understood the Russians and, and historians have said, and the men involved themselves have said, yeah, we kind of understood the Russians. The same men, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, said, we never understood the Vietnamese. And that's, you know, a reaction, you know, late in life that says we weren't curious enough. We weren't curious enough about who the Vietnamese were. And, um, you know, yeah. so I totally agree with you. I totally agree with your point. And, and confirmation bias is happening today because the root of partisanship is that you use your mind to um, confirm your partisan position. And yes. there can be some very, very smart people who do a very smart job of gathering information to support their conservative or liberal um, assumptions. Yes. Well, that's not curiosity. That's not curiosity at all. I would call that um, folk, fake curiosity. Yeah. Fake curiosity. Yeah. Pseudo curiosity. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, w I was looking at your website uh, uh, there's an article there called Democracy as an Inside Job. And uh, you refer to the need for us to have the courage to be curious and the humbleness to drop the pride in thinking we know the answer. And, and that it seems to me that combination is, is necessary. That if, if, we, if, if we have pride that declares I'm right and you're wrong, which is the essence of partisanship, then... Uh, we're not really going to find out the truth. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I've experienced that personally because um, uh, I'll tell a quick story that I was doing a retreat for Democratic and Republican chiefs of staff in the House of Representatives. Right. An equal number from both parties. And um, they were arguing about how to stimulate the economy. Yes. Um, and the liberals wanted to stimulate the economy with unemployment insurance and giving more money to the poor. And the Republicans wanted to stimulate the economy by giving more money to big business so they could do more hiring and expand their operations. Yes. 
And they started arguing about their strategies for stimulating the economy. And I said, well, why don't you find a, what's, what's your evidence that your position works? What's your historical evidence that your way of stimulating the economy is better? And, you know, they kind of had this blank look. Right. And it was pretty clear they didn't have a lot of historical evidence for either position. So I said, well, why don't you form a fact-finding committee that does some research about how in the past have economies stimulated sluggish you know, activity? You know, yeah. How have they done it? The, the, the conservative way or the liberal way? Anyway, they went back to Washington. And I called them a week later and I said, how's the research going? How's the fact-finding committee going? And they said, oh, we never formed it because the party leaders didn't want us to do that. They felt we, they would have a better chance in the next election by using this issue against the other side. So right. it was all about positioning for power, yes. not about curiosity. Yes. And, and um, I understand the need for power. I understand the need to win an election. Um, but right now, politics is the opposite of curiosity. And political leaders cannot say, um, I don't know the answer. I'm curious and I'm, I'm going to find out. You, yeah. you, that's very not in fashion. Yes. Um, for, for leadership. That's called that's look called being weak. The only way to look strong in politics is to say you know the answer and you know you're right. Um, and the and the other side is wrong. And that's what leads to a lack of curiosity or what I call innovation. Yeah. Uh, we're we're I mean, we don't even as a culture, we can innovate the smartphone. I mean, here's my smartphone. We know how to create an incredible phone. Yes. But we don't know how to create a voting system that's reliable. Right. Well, that's that's crazy. You know, if we can do this, yeah. we can create a, a, a voting system, but we need to use curiosity and innovation. Yes. So how, I'm just interested in how, how it's been for you personally. In, in terms of you were working on this uh, in, in Congress, working with Republicans and Democrats. And uh, I, I think from what I know, you had some success at that time. I'm talking about the late 1990s, I think. Um, so what's it been like for you to, to witness the hyper-partisanship that's current now? Um, it, it's, yeah, how, how, how's that been? I mean, I've certainly had yeah. a tough time with that. I just wonder what it's like for you because you've been so involved in it. Well, from a generational perspective, let me say that, you know, my assistant at Mediators Foundation is 2024. 20, Right. And she pointed out to me that all she knows, all she knows is hyperpartisanship. She's never seen anything else. Right. So my generation, we actually saw a period of time when Democrats and Republicans worked together. Yes. And that wasn't always because they were both right. Um, Democrats and Republicans for many years worked together on the Vietnam War. Yes. So that was a bipartisanship that took us in the wrong direction. So I'm not a I don't believe that bipartisanship is the yes. same as always doing doing the right thing. Sometimes it's doing the convenient thing or doing sure, the national sure. thing. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. specifically how I feel having seen Congress try to reform, I guess I feel a little bit like a family therapist who's had a session with a couple. The couple makes good progress on their, you know, on their couple's retreat. Yes. And then after they leave the couple's retreat, they go back home and they start arguing and fighting the same way, even even worse. Yes, that's how I feel. I feel disappointed, and I also realize how fundamental it is to change the system. Yes, because I've seen generation after generation of both good and not so good leaders uh, become hyperpartisan because the system is arranged. Yes, for that outcome, it's arranged and designed for that outcome. So it's not that the system is broken. 
the system is producing exactly what the system is designed to produce, which is partisanship, ever increasing partisanship, just like the economy is designed to increase, to, to create ever increasing inequality. Yes. And to change either of those phenomena, the rules of the economy or the rules of politics have to change. And that's our problem, I think, Richard, is that how do you, how do you change, how do you repair a plane when it's flying? And similarly, how do you repair a democracy when it's in operation? You have to have a consensus to repair the democracy, and it's precisely working together that that can't happen. So um, it's, yes. it's a very it's a it's a catch twenty two. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to go back to your your article, "Democracy is an Inside Job," because uh, one of the things you say there is that each person, every one of us, needs to have the the courage to be curious and the and the humbleness to to drop our pride and to stop this declaration of I'm wrong and I'm right and you're wrong. Um, how, how does that, if we do that, how does that translate? Okay, there's two things here. Um, as, as you know from, from my book, um, It's a Freaking Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times, um, one of the things that I focus on is, okay, if we drop our own personal partisanship, we nearly always feel happier because we're not carrying around that enmity, we're not carrying around the hate, we're not carrying around the anger, um, and we feel more peaceful and more contented, and it's it's a boon for everyone who does that. So, And we get along better with our relatives. And we get along better with our relatives, <laughs> indeed, yes. So, so, the, so then my question is, okay, uh, how, how do we, clearly that's a great thing to do, and uh, I know I believe it and you believe it. Um, how do we, well, something you said to me once, you said, uh, how, 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 can we, uh, how, how can we promote this, let's put it that way? Because it's so easy to promote uh, partisanship and you, all you have to do is, is get everyone's, um emotional circuitry going with hatred or anger or how terrible the other side are what look what they did and oh my goodness look what's going to happen and as soon as we do that then all the circuitry in our brain and the the amygdala and the limbic circuits in our brain are going haywire and we actually we lose our intelligent discrimination our intelligent discernment i should say and when we do that then we can't even think straight because all we can so anyway how do we, this is a question for you and me and, uh, and so many others, how, how do we promote this alternative, which is so much uh, more wonderful to live in for everybody than the hyperpartisanship? Uh, anyway, I'd love to know what you think about that. Well, the short answer is, I think people need to experience that. They need to experience the high of collaboration, the high of working to, with together with people who are different from themselves to achieve a common goal. Right. I, I, I've, I've written about the fact that partisanship, you can get drunk on partisanship. Yes. That you can get stoned or high on partisanship. That the, just as you were saying, the brain chemistry loves being surrounded by, I've, I've attended rallies for Hillary Clinton and, and for Donald Trump and for Bernie Sanders and, I've watched at these gatherings and, and you can get high at them because you're surrounded by people who yeah. think like you. Yeah. 
You're screaming at the same time. You're angry at the same people. Yep. It gets the entire adrenaline pumping. Yep. And and it's you know it's it's to put it simply, it's inebriating. It's thrilling. Yes. It's an adrenaline right. high. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Right. Yeah. And so, what do we have to offer as an alternative to that way of getting drunk? Well, yes. the only way is, is I think it's exactly what you were saying, Richard, and exactly what you say in your book that. Um, I've worked with people in communities where they're dealing with a problem and the problem is, you know, getting worse and worse and it's making them angry and tense and, un and, and unhappy and hating their neighbors. And when they get together on that problem and work together to solve it and make progress, it's a high, yeah. you know, it's a high. Yeah. Now it might not be quite the cocaine high of partisanship. It might be more the, you know, Chardonnay high of collaboration, but it's still getting high, you know, and I think we've got a, we've got a, to put it more more fundamentally, we've got to real, help people realize just what you said a moment ago, which is that they will be happier, and I would add healthier, um, and also more connected to others if they drop the hyperpartisanship and become curious. Yeah, yeah, they, they will they will live a better life, live a better, yeah. richer, fuller life. Yeah. And I think it's important for it to be put that way because if you say do it so that the country will be stronger or do it so that we can reduce the debt or do it so that we can deal with the climate, you know, crisis. Yeah. That's an external payoff, which they may or may not care about. Yeah. But everybody wants to live a fuller, more meaningful, richer life with more better relationships and, you know, more harmonious life. Everybody wants that. So. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it will be a, freaking, it will be a freaking mess to quote your book. It will be a freaking mess until we learn that. And, I mean, all you have to do, whatever time this podcast airs and whatever time a person's listening to it, yes. all they have to do is go to that day's paper and they will see the freaking mess in action. Yes. So um, it's it's all around us right now. Yes. Uh, talking about what, you know, what people see on, on the on the media, um, you mentioned in your book, uh, taking a, uh, this is your book, the, the Reunited States of America. You mentioned taking a 30-day media fast, uh, you know, take the time to stop reading and watching and listening all the things that confirm your worldview and to deliberately access podcasts, magazines, newspapers, and so on that have unfamiliar perspectives. And uh, I, I like that idea a lot. Um, is this something that, uh, it's something that I have done and I imagine you have done it, um, how, how successful have you been in, in uh, getting other people to try it? Or maybe you, do, you may not know the answer to that. Well, I, I, I have specific examples. I don't know because through my book, The United States, and through the film, The United States, that's aired on Amazon Prime for some time, I'm sure it, my message has touched people I've never met, but I do know some people. Yes. Personally, and um, I'm, I've been very touched by them. In fact, you know, the the couple, the Republican couple who star in the film, The Reunited States, uh, which is inspired by my book, The Reunited States of America, the couple that's featured in the film, yeah. uh, whose names are David and Aaron Leverton, were Republicans who set off in an RV with their kids to 50 states. And one of the things that propelled them to quit their jobs and sell their house and go meet Americans was that they'd heard me on Dallas Public Radio 
basically saying what you and I are saying now, which is right. it's time to get out of your partisan bubble. Right. And bless their souls, David and Aaron said, how can we love America if we don't know America? Right. Um, which is why they got in the RV and spent a year traveling to 50 states to, to, to get to know America. And, and their story is a beautiful story uh, that confirms your hypothesis, Richard, of, of a superpower curiosity. They were curious. Yeah. Once they left Dallas in their RV, they wanted to know why do people think differently? And they didn't have to go any further uh, than Oklahoma, uh, than Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, where they learned about the race riots and, 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 and what happened in Tulsa in 1920 yeah. to start going, oh, I didn't know that. I, right. I never heard about this, you know. Mm-hmm. And suddenly these two Republicans, deeply Christian and, and Republicans, were starting to see America through different eyes. Yeah, and I, I I I love their curiosity, and they are a good case study that's been memorialized in a documentary film uh, that really fulfills, I think, and confirms your 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 hypothesis that curiosity is essential to getting us out of this partisan mess. Yeah, yeah, I think you've also mentioned uh, John Gable, uh, uh, AllSides.com, bursting the bias bubble. Um, and I, I, th- yes. I think he, he attempts to present the news from, from all sides in, in, uh, in that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. John is someone who in 2014, I invited to come to a meeting where for the first time he as a Republican was surrounded by people who were Republicans, independents, Democrats. And yeah, he, he had realized that the, that the internet, which he'd been a part of, you know, as a, as a co-founder and builder of many of these, uh, platforms that we use, he realized that his the dreams for the internet were not being fulfilled, that it was actually not bringing us together, but pulling us apart. And he yes. decided he created allsides.com in order to really create a, a website so that you could not go there for a right-wing point of view, not go there for a left-wing point of view, but go there to get right, center, and left all at the same time yep. and learn to think for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. I, I, I'm One of the things I... I really loved about your book was the your illustration of the absurdity of trying to force people to choose between apparent opposites, apparent opposites that actually are not opposites. And uh, so, for instance, um, I, I mentioned a couple. One was uh, change or stability. And, and obviously the Republicans uh, tend to be more for stability and uh, the Democrats, as popularly imagined, are more for change. And the point you make, of course, we need both. And I'm going to quote you here. <laughs> what you said was, uh, uh, what you wrote was, change without stability becomes dangerous. Stability without change becomes stagnant. And yes. uh, I like that because because it, it's 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 aphoristic, and I. I think that's cool, but I, <laughs> I also like it because it just points out very clearly that of course we need change, of course we need stability, we need both, and the discussion is how do we do that? Well, and and my favorite metaphor for that, Richard, is um, is the human body. Yes. Um, when somebody's temperature is not ninety eight point six. Yes. If right now you took your temperature and it was one hundred one. Yes. Or even one hundred. You'd be you'd be concerned because you have a fever. Similarly, if it was ninety six or ninety four, you'd be concerned because it was too low. Yeah. 
We want the stability of 98.6. Yeah. So in that sense, our bodies are very conservative. Yeah. But on the other hand, our bodies are extremely liberal because if they didn't change, I'd still weigh eight pounds, six ounces, you know? Um, <laughs> you know? So, so our, bodies, our bodies are examples of change and stability. And, and I also think the body's great because, you know, right now I've got a left hand and a right hand and, you know, the whole idea of living my life with one hand and put the other behind my back. I don't want to do that. <laughs> right. So our bodies, you know, my eyes, my ears, you know, everything is left and right, left and right, left and right, left and right. I'm a walking, I'm a walking bipartisan body. You know? <laughs> right. so. I love that. That's great. Uh, well, I got, there's another one you mentioned was, was freedom and order. And obviously, once again, obviously we need both. Um, and the way you put it was uh, freedom without order becomes anarchy order without freedom becomes dictatorship so once again of course we want order of course we want freedom yes. and how do we do that yeah and i mean I've, I've raised three sons and i'm now the grandfather of seven grandchildren and anybody who's raised kids they need order yes and they need freedom yeah exactly you try, to, you try to raise a child only with order or only with freedom, and you're going to have problems with parent. Yes, <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. That bring, that brings home the point really clearly. Yeah, as the father of two sons, I I can really appreciate that. Yeah, and I think so. The last one I wanted to mention was uh, uh, I like this one a lot too. It was public service or free enterprise, and obviously all capitalist countries do both. Um, and, uh, the way you put that one was public service without free enterprise goes bankrupt. And we can think of many examples of that and free enterprise without public service loses its civic direction. And we can think of many examples of that too. Um, again, yes. I, I mean, well, I, I, what I, what I'm trying what to I, do there, yeah, what yeah, in all those, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say that the when we when politicians or the media try to push us into these either or positions um, with these false either or positions, it stimulates all those emotional limbic circuits in our brains, gets the adrenaline running, and so on. And then we we can't hear anything. We um, and and as you as you said, when we're in partisanship, we lose our curiosity. And we, we also lose our kindness, we lose our respect, um, we, we kind of lose our decency as human beings. And, and let me add to your list of what we lose, we lose the truth. Yes. We lose the truth. I, I, I think in that same section of the book, I talk about the parties peddling half-truths. Yes. Um, they're not always lying. Um, they're sometimes and often telling you half the truth. Yes. You know, half the truth is that government can be wasteful, you know? Yes. Um, half the truth is that private enterprise can be very, uh, very uh, inefficient. Yes. Uh, but, but that's only half the truth. You know, what's the other half? The other half is, you know, government can do some remarkable positive things. Yes. And uh, private enterprise can be very efficient and very productive. So yes. th all these, um, you know, all these half truths that, that, um, I mean, that's, that's why I think people in politics often start to lose their soul after a number of years because their souls know the truth. Yes. Yet publicly, they have to continue to peddle the half-truths, you know. And 
And one of the examples that's most tender to me is abortion that, and, 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 and the right to choose that, you know, who really wants to say that the mother's rights matter and the fetuses doesn't, or that the fetuses rights matter and the mother's doesn't. Exactly. I mean, that that's, you know, if, if anybody has ever dealt with a, a pregnancy that was, you know, in limbo, yep. you want to care for both the fetus and the mother and you want the right thing for them. And you don't want some government bureaucrat or some religious um, fanatic telling them what they're supposed to do about a incredibly painful personal choice that has to be made. And um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, to me, that's the most, one of the most vivid and tender, but it's, it's also got round, round, round with guns, which is an issue I spend a lot on that, you know, the left tends to say that there shouldn't be guns anywhere around schools or any, and or good, good shouldn't be guns anywhere, um, except maybe in policemen's hands. And, uh, and the right says that guns should be everywhere. Right. And, you know, both of those are completely non-starters for me. You know, I mean, right. if you want your children to be safer at school tomorrow, you cannot subscribe to either the right or the left-wing extreme positions because your kids are not going to be safer tomorrow. Yeah. Um, they're not going to be safer from school shootings. And we have lost sight of that. And, uh, and, uh, it, and it's on issue after issue after issue. And I'm so pleased with you picking the theme of curiosity because it cuts across the partisan divide. Yeah, exactly. They're both lacking in curiosity. It, I've asked parents in school districts, how would you make your school safer for children? How would you make your school? And they have really good conversations. Yeah. And they don't like people who come and tell them that there should be guns in everybody's pocket, including the janitors and the, the bus drivers and, and their teachers. And they don't like people who say there shouldn't be a gun anywhere near the school right. because they know that the school is completely vulnerable then to yeah. being attacked by some maniac. Yeah. So, but, but they have to be in their hearts. Yeah. They have to be in their hearts. And, and, and I think that's something I'd like to say about curiosity and then pass you the talking stick back, which is that curiosity is not only a mental thing. Yeah. It's also an emotional thing. It's, yes. it's, it's where the mind and the heart come together. Yes. Um, the mind by itself isn't curious. The mind by itself wants to be right. <laughs> you know, it has to be paired with the heart yeah. to really want to find something new. Yes. Well, maybe um, just to take that, um, for it to phrase it in a different way, but if the mind is, is run by the ego that needs to be right, then curiosity disappears. And if the mind is connected with, with the, the heart that, that wants the truth, then, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's very different. Yeah, Beautifully put, Richard. That's, that's beautifully put. I just going back to abortion. It's 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 such a fascinating thing because in the partisanship, the the people who uh, support a woman's access to abortion uh, can get called murderers, and the people who are against a woman's access to abortion can can get and do get called. Um, you know, male chauvinists and uh, being against a woman's right to choose and, and, and being anti-choice and so on. And it's all highly partisan. And in that partisanship, the, there's one question of curiosity that gets completely lost, which is if, we, if, we, if you believe in the soul, uh, there's a question of when does the, the fetus become ensouled? Uh, what, what day, what month? And there are 
It's a fascinating question. And there are a lot of different answers. Interestingly, the Catholic Church believed for centuries that the, the fetus becomes ensouled at about four months when the baby begins to move. And I'm not saying the Catholic Church is right. I'm just saying that there are many, many different opinions. But that question gets completely lost in this uh, partisan accusing of each other of terrible deeds. So I, I'm it's just it's another point supporting what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Mark, a uh, a more personal question. Can you uh, can you tell us one of the the biggest learnings that you've had on your journey of understanding, and and how this learning affected your own life personally? Well, I think it relates to this um, topic we were just discussing, which is the relationship of the heart to the mind. Right. That I think um, when I was younger, still very much the product of schooling, where you're graded by, you know, get your grades for tests and you get yeah. tests and you get A's and then you go to college and, and, and you get graded for how good your paper is or um, whether you get answers right on tests. And um, I think I had a notion that the mind was, um, the mind was taking us in the right direction and that often emotions would take us in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. You know, see the irrationality of Nazism, for example, right, right. or the irrationality of fascism, or the kind of irrationality we were just talking about, um, which just gets very partisan. Yes. And I, I thought, so, oh, that's because people's emotions have taken over um, and gotten in the way of their logical, rational minds. Yes, and I, yes. I, think, I think one of the biggest learnings I've had both politically and personally is that um, that was a very oversimplified way of looking at the world, which I had for a long time. And that um, often it's the mind that can lead us astray and emotions can actually bring us back um, yeah. to the ground, to the truth, to the fullness of who we are. So I think I've come around full circle now and see it as a cosmic partnership between the mind and the heart. Yes. And, and um, uh, one of the things I'm very sensitive to uh, when I read a book or when I listen to a speech or I watch a, something on television is, is there a balance? Is there an integration between mind and heart? Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the things I like about your work is that I think you bring the best of both mind and heart to, to your work and uh, it grows out of your profession and your background. And it's taken me a long time to learn that. And I'm still learning both personally and professionally. Yeah. Thank you. Mark. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm learning it too. One of the ways that I think of it is that when we have divisive emotions, mostly anger and fear as the prime emotions, those emotions tend to rule our brains. And then we construct messages in our own minds that support our fear or support our anger and support our divisiveness. And um, but that's the bad news. And the good news is, that if we have collaborative emotions, emotions of connections and, and emotions of empathy, emotions of compassion, uh, love and joy, um, and I'm gonna add respect in there too, uh, then all those emotions also run our minds. But, the, but I, I really think the heart often uh, primarily actually does uh, 
control how our minds access information. So if we if we are emotionally divisive, we are going to access partisan uh, facts, so-called, or half facts, as you put it. And if we are uh, emotionally uh, collaborative and, and value togetherness, then that's also going to uh, affect how we use our minds. Um, yes, and going back, going back to your theme, yeah. that collaborative approach is much more likely to produce curiosity. Because, yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I have to be curious if I'm interested in the point of view that I don't share. Um, yes, and, uh, yes. And I'm never going to understand the point of view I don't share without curiosity. Um, yes. So, um, and that's why I go back to what I said, and I've, I've actually learned from this interview with you to be clear now that, um, yeah, that curiosity is, is, grows out of the heart and curiosity is the antidote to partisanship, you know? Yes. And, and I believe that just to put in a plug for democracy here, as we, as we come to the close here. Yes. Um, fascism and dictatorship don't require curiosity. They actually. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Killing curiosity. That's a kill curiosity. Yes. They need what we call indoctrination. Democracy actually depends on curiosity. Yes. Um, and without it, um, the democracy gets stale and turns into something else. So yeah. I think you've picked a theme for this podcast that is um, absolutely essential. And I, and I feel, feel privileged to be a part of it. Thank you, Mark. And uh, I also thank you so much for a, a, a really interesting conversation. And also, I, I thank you uh, sincerely for all you do to transcend divisive partisanship. Uh, your courage to challenge the us and them narrative and and your clarity that it's really fine that we have different opinions and at the same time how we can honor our fellow citizens with respect and kindness which as you point out leads to greater effectiveness for improving the workings of our society so i thank you very much for for everything you do and i thank you for this uh enjoyable conversation Thank you. Absolutely, Richard. Thank you. All right. Take care. So glad you could join us in the Curiosity Room on this episode of Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette, featuring Mark Gerzon. We always want to hear what you think. And we're also putting together listener questions for upcoming episodes. If you have a question or comment for Richard, send in a voice memo or email to superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. Are you enjoying this show? Help others find us now by taking a minute to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned to this feed. Our next episode comes out in two weeks, so subscribe now to make sure you catch episode 18, Beyond All Prejudice. Till next time, stay curious!